Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the In this Pulp Event Podcast, David Saunders, pulp art historian, and son of pulp artist Norman Saunders, discusses the mystery and mastery of John Newton Howitt. The talk was recorded on Saturday, August 9th, 2014, at Pulp Fest 2014 in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, John Newton Howitt was born May 7th, 1885 in White Plains, New York. He was known to his family and friends as Newton because his father was named John Howard also, but not John Newton, so he's not um, junior. So John Howard uh, was his father, and um, he was born, senior, the old guy, in 1857 in New Jersey of English ancestry. And his mother, uh, Aidy Louise Romer, was born in 1858 in Mount Pleasant, New York, her family had been prominent in the local history of Westchester County, you know, which is just north of New York City. Um, she was like a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And so it's a pretty much, you know, a, a family with a lot of tradition. And uh, her grandfather was Isaac M. Twitchings, and he was the first postmaster of Pleasantville, New York, which is right there also. And uh, old Grandpa Twitchings gave the Howitt um, mother and father their home here at 21 Lake Street as a wedding gift when they were married in 1882. And uh, they had two children. Um, the artist was born first, and uh, his younger brother, Louis Romer Howitt, was um, five years later in 1890. The father was a skilled um, tailor and uh, also manufactured ladies' clothing. Um, the father and the father's two brothers worked with their father's ladies' clothing shop at 50 Central Avenue in White Plains. So this is all 1885 in White Plains. At the age of four, John Newton Howitt contracted polio. During his convalescence, his father uh, interested him in drawing. So it's neat that his dad was a kind of a creative person and uh, a tailor and whatnot. And um, you have this kind of uh, a noble family in terms of the town prominence a little bit. The first thing that the uh, little four and five-year-old child uh, drew were everything in his neighborhood trees, neighboring homes, and the railroad station. And during um, and after his recovery, he had to wear a metal brace on his right leg, which was able to help him to walk, although for the rest of his life, his right leg was partially paralyzed. In uh, 1896, he began to use, um, he was only 11 years old, the carriage house on his property behind that building as a little private studio. And despite his uh, small size and his handicap, uh, this young artist began to draw imaginary scenery that was inspired by the local 
author, James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans. And he decorated the, the carriage house, which remained until recent times, um, all decorated with this bizarre, beautiful scene along the Mohawk River. Um, and you have to wonder how, where was this creative spirit in this child was so powerful that uh, in his imaginary world, in his parents' carriage garage, he was able to muster the wherewithal to do this type of theatrical sets in his um, backyard. Um, because of uh, you know, his physical problems, he had homeschooling, and, um, but was able to concentrate on his lessons more than all the other kids. So as often happens with homeschooling, um, by the age of only 12, he was, um, in 1898, began to attend the high school in White Plains, where you can imagine he was outstanding, not only for his youth, his small size, his pronounced limp, his glasses, his excellent grades, his complete lack of athletic ability, as well as the popular recognition as the class artist. He graduated from high school in June of 1901. By that time, his father and the two uncles had bought the business from the, father, from the grandfather and had relocated Howitt Ladies Clothing Shop from the main street of White Plains to New York City, where they rented a business space at 13 West 20th Street. After his high school graduation, John Newton Howitt began to routinely accompany his father. That's a kind of a cute image just showing his um, little town uh, outlook on life in a way. This is just an image of him as a uh, young man. But he began to accompany his father um, to New York City uh, and go to um, Grand, I mean, uh, go to study at the Art Students League. And uh, this is a picture of it at the time that he was attending uh, on West 57th Street. His teachers included um, the famous George Bridgman, uh, who was basically a 20th century Michelangelo in terms of uh, his drawing power. And so he believed in something called dynamic energy. And so he, he tried to fill everything that he drew uh, with this uh, super powerful dynamic shapes. And that was the Bridgman approach. <laughs> but also um, less famous was Frank Dumont, was his other teacher, uh, who is a, um, just an excellent painter and uh, taught Norman Rockwell and many, many people. Um, and here's like an example of the type of work that Frank Dumont does. And you can see uh, it's, it's, it's actually, in terms of the various isms in art or something, it comes from what would be called Jerome or the Salon painting of Paris. And so that's the, uh, the, the classical ratio of the body parts with a, uh, a basically a stage setting behind it and a, a tight composition. And uh, this is uh, very, very typical of the criteria of the 1880s in Paris. And so that was the, the highest um, non-modernist 
um, um, technique that was popular at the turn of the century. And so it's interesting to see in how, it, how he's able to embrace um, kind of an anti-modernist almost um, uh, approach to painting. And it undoubtedly comes from his, his uh, teacher, Frank Dumont. His other third teacher at the uh, Art Students League was uh, Henry Reuterdahl. And if you um, like uh, sea stories or practically any uh, 1920s pulps, you'll find beautiful seascapes by him. And uh, you can also see um, a, you know, a powerful, playful, macabre quality um, in Henry Reuterdahl also. Um, but uh, both Dumont and Reuterdahl are interesting artists to think of in, in connection with the, ultimately the vision um, that Howitt was able to invent of his own. Here's an early painting by Howitt. Um, he, even while at the Art Students League, began to sell freelance illustrations to the New York Herald Tribune. And his work appeared during that um, decade uh, in this in uh, the American Sunday Monthly Magazine, Hampton Magazine, and Broadway Magazine. Um, in 1907, he finished um, his studies. It's not like a graduation thing. He just completed his studies with these different guys. And uh, he rented this space. Um, this is obviously a contemporary photograph uh, on 147 West 23rd Street, which is only three blocks from where his uh, father's uh, ladies tailoring shop is. So um, undoubtedly that's the area, um, um, you know, because if his, uh, he always had a, a lack of mobility basically. So um, he probably went back and forth to the studio with his father, a certain amount. And uh, he placed this advertisement in a directory um, to try and show the type of work that he's capable of doing. And uh, he was quite successful. And uh, West 23rd Street all the way to East 23rd Street was a very famous um, artist row uh, at that time um, with many of the top um, graphic and um, illustrators and artists in New York City. And you can see again, uh, although we think of him, you know, in, in, in the pulp context, that these are um, uh, I don't know, um, upper class sort of aspiration illustrations, you know, of um, the wealthy people. And there was a concept in advertising at that time that uh, you don't just sell them toothpaste, you sell them the idea that they will have the lifestyle of something they aspire to, such as the very wealthy or something. So here we see, you know, the uh, super wealthy. And so that was basically. Um, a very popular advertising approach. In um, 19... Wait, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. So, um, 1911, he was asked to join the uh, Etheridge Art Agency, which is a special uh, nationwide advertised artist agency, and it included um, Ryan Decker, uh, but also artists that we know from pulps like um, Robert Grafe and Charles Williams, they were in that. 
1913, his brother, Louis Romer Howard, graduated from Columbia University, and uh, he returned then to White Plains, where he lived and worked at home. Some local real estate contractors occasionally hired him um, to approve drawings for buildings and stuff. But he seemed to basically fail to thrive as an independent professional architect. Um, and so um, he's, uh, his younger brother is back home living in his parents' home, and he's living in his parents' home. And um, by 19, you know, uh, 14. Uh, during the years before the, uh, the war, um, he illustrated uh, Red, Red, I mean, the First World War. He illustrated Red Book, Woman's Home Companion, Household, McLean's, McClure's, and Scribner's. He also painted advertisements for Crisco, Devo Paints, um, and um, Bran Flakes and Corn Flakes. Um, let's see what we got here. Here's a little ad from the uh, White Plains um, tele uh, directory, business directory, and you can see that it has uh, Howitt J. Newton, artist, Howitt John J., ladies tailor, and Howitt Lewis R., architect, all living in uh, Grandpa Twitching's house on 21 Lake Street there. These are the illustrations uh, typical of his, um, you know, pre-war period, um, but you know, with a little imagination, you could see possibly a masked superhero sneaking up in the background. <laughs> this is, I thought, a rather touching, um, it's his, uh, the front and back side of his um, uh, draft registration card for, during the Great War. It says that he's uh, medium height, slender build, gray eyes, brown hair, and crippled right leg. Um, you know, uh, like many of the people, he was uh, uh, tried to work on war posters and uh, um, Liberty Bonds, and um, there were many competitions and stuff to do these types of things. And in this one, it's uh, Liberty Bonds are light in the dark. They're all with us, Bill, back home. And uh, this was entered into a, a large competition in 1918. And uh, the, the winner of the competition was this guy, Arthur Treadler. <coughs> and uh, I'm sorry, Adolf Treadler. And uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a rather famous poster. Um, Help stop this. And uh, it, it got into a little controversy because the, um, the artist actually copied it from a French poster. And uh, so there was an effort at McClure's magazine, which had uh, championed a lot of their own artists who had worked them, like Howard, to um, um, use their uh, rejected posters and stuff. And McClure's had uh, published a uh, article by, um, what's his name, Guy de Empre or something, and. Uh, he had said, you know, that our guys really need cigarettes, so we should contribute cigarettes to them. 
And then McClure started a campaign called uh, Our Boys in France Tobacco Fund, which is uh, complicated. And uh, this was like a typical ad during that year um, of uh, that you should pack up your tobaccos and, or send money to McClure's so they will send tobacco to the boys. And this is um, uh, an, an article, a part of that series. Um, uh, with a, uh, a, a title. <laughs> and um, then they reused uh, how it's... Um, what are you laughing at, Walker? I mean, it's just not appropriate, right? <laughs> and uh, so they reused the thing and they took off the lettering and put it at the bottom. They're all with us, Bill, back home. And so that was uh, McClure's effort to uh, um, use one. And this went on all year long. They had all their top artists doing this um, with their rejected covers from the uh, uh, Liberty Bond Drive thing. Uh, all during this time period, uh, he continued to do landscape paintings, and his actual fame as a, um, a landscape painter um, was interesting because New York City galleries uh, uh, were able to sell these landscape paintings uh, in the 20s um, because he was a famous celebrated illustrator, as well as these, you know, so it was a, a he was simultaneously following his uh, original uh, ins inspiration to draw the local railroad station and the trees and stuff. He continued doing this, and it was very significant for him. And uh, he became a lifelong member of the Arts and Crafts Guild of Westchester County and the Hudson Valley Art Association. And he continued to always uh, play a big part in the art community in his um, little hometown there. But all that time he was producing these um, illustrations and advertising for major magazines during the Roaring Twenties. Country Gentleman, Farm Life, Liberty, Saturday Evening Post. On June 2nd, 1925, the artist's father died at the age of 69. As the family's eldest son, John Newton Howitt, became the head of the household and the major provider. Um, you recall that his brother seemed to have failed to uh, uh, become a professional for some reason. And so he has a younger brother and his uh, widowed mother. And um, he was actually uh, very wealthy, basically. He was a celebrated and a rather famous illustrator. He would be like in the top... Uh, 40 names or something like that. Um, so, um, but at the same time, I think the death of his father may have created a kind of a conflict for him because um, he really had to uh, face a conflict between his um, deep roots in Westchester and his ambitions to be a successful illustrator in New York City. And you can see he's kind of being torn between two things. And, and you'll notice this conflict has nothing to do with um, sensational pulp or anything. It's just an inherent conflict that's happening in his life. This is his father's death notice. And these are his wonderful um, 
advertisements. Urgitest <clears throat> Now comes the big moment. Uh, October 29th, New York City stock market crashed and the nation entered a period of desperate financial crisis. Um, the Great Depression devastated the established hierarchy of American advertising and American publishing and every other American industry. By 1930, John Newton Howitt and his 40, was 45 years old, and his brother Lewis was 40, and they lived in their childhood home with their mother, who was 72. Um, in September of that year, he gave up his studio, which, as you may recall, was in that uh, tall building on the right, and moved uh, you know, three doors over to this uh, short um, wooden frame building, which was much cheaper and more affordable. And you can get an idea that he's, um, if not suffering financially, at least trying to behave in a defensive manner to, to lower his overhead or something. Now in that particular building, um, his next door neighbor was John Fleming Gold, uh, who was, uh, had grown up with Walter Baumhofer in Brooklyn. And uh, these two pals had also recently graduated from Pratt School of Art in Brooklyn. Oddly enough, Howitt, Bonhoeffer, and Gould were soon, or that, right at that time, began to be the three most important artists to an ambitious young publisher of pulp magazines, Harry Steger. Uh, Steger had recently re uh, visited Paris and enjoyed their bizarre tradition of gruesome horror stories as a popular form of entertainment and was inspired to publish a similarly gruesome line of pulp magazines, Terror Tales, Horror Stories, Dime Mystery, and Detective Magazine. According to the publisher, Howitt and I designed cover paintings, quote, um, as though we were preparing something for the Louvre, so he still continued to think of this as a basically a French uh, flavor enterprise. First, he recounted, there would be several hours of discussion about how the painting would be done, and then the artist would bring it back uh, for the most minute criticisms. That's certainly not a good example of it. Um, and I promise you we covered every square inch of the painting and saw to it that it was done to perfection all the way through. I must say that he was very tolerant of my efforts and criticisms. He never complained about taking covers back for revisions, and he would work on them for many hours. He was indeed a very gifted artist and was obviously one of our best painters. It is not appropriate to think that Howard led some kind of double life, oh, bad picture again, and that he did these things under a veil of secrecy, because I think that is anything I think that anything like that was furthest from our minds. John Newton Howitt had no vivid, violent, sadomasochistic flights of fancy in his makeup any more than I do. But I don't know if we can attest to Harry Steger's complete innocence, I don't know. But this was all part of fun. No, no, Howard was no psychiatric case. He was just a very talented painter working for a certain market and we were all enjoying ourselves very much producing this stuff. So these are um, 
you know, more uh, slick magazine paintings. And this is a sensational uh, cover spider. And if you look in the center at the bottom, you'll see it's signed Howard. Um, and, you know, the other one, uh, the Far West Illustrated, is signed Howard. So, um, you know, the pulp magazines made a lot of uh, money by selling cheap thrills to the masses instead of uh, relying on advertising as their source of income. This was an, a profitable uh, formula, especially when unemployed workers had more time to read. So during the 1930s, he was a popular artist for um, adventure, dime detective, um, dime mystery, horror stories, Operator 5, Aspire, Territories, Terror Tales, Top Notch, Whisper, and Western Story. And he continued to do Saturday Evening Post in 1934. Now we're looking at these things chronologically um, instead of uh, by theme. You can see in this one that uh, there's a black outline around everything. And um, in several of these recent ones, there's a uh, black outline around that woman in there. It's just kind of unusual. It would not work with Jerome. So here's now using more graphic modernist type things. It's an effort to break away from what had been just simply a traditional illustrational approach. So this diving woman has a black outline around her, which makes it a more of a two-dimensional graphic poster as opposed to classical painting. And you'll see that the spider, the hand of the, at the, on the spider itself has a black outline around it. Um, and the early work by Walter Baumhofer also has black outlines around them um, until you're like 33. So this was like a graphic choice to be um, cutting edge or something or hip. And this has a pronounced black outline around it. And uh, I know I've seen this published, but I can't remember where it, where it was. But I think it, uh, I just wasn't, couldn't find it, like Sports Afield, but. It's on, the, it's on our website. I, I identified that. Oh, great. So look there. <laughs> is, is that Mike talking? Yeah. Yeah, I should say right in the beginning that, um, you know, Mike asked me to give this talk. It's entirely his fault. It's not mine. <laughs> And also that uh, Mike had written a spectacular uh, first and foremost um, bio on John Newton Howard for Purple Prose. So um, uh, this is a great adventure cover, but these are uh, Sunday supplement um, illustrations that a lot of the pulp artists were also doing. So you see there's a, a still a strong mixture of pulp and um, Slip magazine type illustrations. And this is a picture of his wife. On April 3rd, 1934, John Newton had married Bertha Ann Wood. She was born on August 14th, 1885, which was the same year that he was born, so they were both 49 years old at the time of their marriage. Her father had been the local druggist, and uh, she was the school nurse at Port Jervis, high school, from which she graduated in 1904. She was an outspoken public advocate of women's voters to promote socially conscious programs to foster inclusive and integrated education for students that were physically and mentally challenged. 
She was actually a well-known, famous public speaker on behalf of crippled children. Um, her father had died six years earlier, which is interesting because his father had died about 10 years earlier. And, um, and she lived with her 80-year-old mother in their childhood home, which her parents had built at 14 Orange Street in Port Jervis, New York, which is, uh, I think, 38 miles away from White Plains. <clears throat> Both the Howitt family and the Wood family uh, were socially prominent in their respective communities. So it is very likely that the local newspapers in both White Plains and Port Jervis would have covered their wedding with detailed commentary. And yet it is a curious fact that the bride and groom chose to be married 130 miles away in Radnor, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philadelphia. No mention of their marriage appeared in the Port Jervis or White Plains newspapers. On top of this, their marriage was oddly compromised by several unusual circumstances. The bride and groom were both 49 years old. They both lived in their childhood homes, and they both were the main providers for their elderly mothers. Bertha's mother, Fanny Jane Wood, was 78 years old, and they were both unaccustomed. Both the bride and groom had been on a, they were, I don't know how you say bachelors, they're both bachelors, you know. They were unaccustomed to living with a spouse. And they both had distinct uh, professional reputations in two completely different aspects of publishing because she, um, her speeches were, were constantly uh, uh, reported on and she wrote uh, political commentary in local newspapers that were picked up and carried nationwide about the importance of um, working on behalf of uh, child welfare. So uh, I don't know that it's uh, like Eleanor Roosevelt necessarily, but it's a kind of a, a, a character along those lines of a um, independent woman with strong ideas. Um, and unfortunately, his career was as an illustrator of uh, magazines, but also, you know, a dime detective and whatnot. And it's interesting that um, after their marriage, both the bride and groom did not live together. And uh, they did visit each other on weekends. This is a, a, an article on his, that his, you know, um, wife. Port Jervis, school nurse. I thought it was rather strange. So could somebody hit Chris? He's got to see this. Okay, you're there, okay. So this is the odd time that, um, you know, there's a two or three month um, delay from when you uh, produce something to when it's on the newsstands. And uh, I, this is strangely uh, one of the first issues that are signed H. Uh, and it, of course, comes right after the marriage. Uh, so you can see by continuing to add the H on things, he still is very proud of his work and um, does not, like uh, the majority of pulp artists, choose to leave his work unsigned, but does sign his work with a prominent red H. 
And uh, just as he had previously signed all his work and continued to sign all his work, Howard. So uh, it's certainly not a uh, convincing effort to disguise his identity. And that it's particularly strange that it's uh, a heroic figure grappling with the devil. Uh, if you think of it in the context of what sort of um, things the artist might have been going through at this time. There you see the little H in the corner. <laughs> so now we get to the Howitt that we all recognize. There's clearly some ambivalent pride that he had in his work. Um, this is one of the few, I mean the only um, original that seems to uh, have survived of, of his gruesome work. <laughs> I'll tell you that at the end of the conference. <laughs> so these are uh, just uh, images of them. Howitt um, started a legal battle with Street and Smith in 1936. He was charged uh, $28.20 on sales tax on $2,000 that he'd been paid for 16 paintings at $125 each. Uh, the, he refused to pay that sales tax. And um, you can see within that a sort of a, um, a determined um, person that was going to stand his ground and uh, that sort of thing. And um, the case grew all the way to the historic proportions and uh, embroiled uh, the entire publishing industry in uh, different people, you know, the publishers versus the uh, talent, basically. And the New York State Supreme Court ruled that um, the publishing houses had to pay any sales tax as instead of um, the artists. And that just shows you something about his um, um, sticking up for himself and not being a wallflower whatsoever. Far be it from me to try and artistically or aesthetically um, translate into words what these images may sig signify. I would have to say every single one is just as good as the other. So here's a cover for Liberty. Um, he continued to work, you know, for Collier, Saturday Evening Post, but uh, it was such a competitive field during the Great Depression, and uh, they were unable to, I mean, the magazines were thinner, they weren't able to carry as much advertising, so the industry was struggling, and the top five or ten artists received the, the majority of all the work. And so, the second tier or the third tier um, received almost no work. And so that's part of the financial struggle that we can see in artists that's um, moving to a cheaper space and working for cheaper magazines, but still continuing to get jobs. I thought this was particularly bizarre um, because these are the same uh, model and the same time And she may be wearing the same dress in both of them.
Again, it's um, uh, Harry Steger may have left out, you know, whatever the, uh, the emotional uh, feelings and complexities may be. Um, but here we see, you know, a, a, a deformed person as some sort of demonic thing, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, increasingly typical in the horror and terror and, and all of the <laughs> pulps. <laughs> So you can see again, this might be the influence of his wife because he's contributing a poster to raise money for her hospitals. And um, you can see by the date on the top there, it's 1935. It's just interesting that there's uh, some aesthetic reflection of the spider himself with his cloak and uh, hat and this gentleman walking up the stairs. It's interesting to see that these are both by the same artist at the exact same time, and that, you know, they're, you know, they reflect a, a similar sensibility of how to compose a picture. And you have, again, I think something illustrative of a conflict within a person because he's earning money here as these um, uh, uh, gruesome pulp covers, which he obviously excelled at, and, um, this other effort uh, to be a, a, a generous and kind contributor to society. I hope these are all familiar to everyone. You notice the way that he paints the flames and stuff? It's um, kind of similar. In a way, uh, I'm kind of mocking it, but I'm not, because it actually is very, really interesting that this is an artist, he's signing it, John Newton Howitt, and H. And you'll see that the H and the Howitt are both written on the exact same background color, of a, it's a bright red against a kind of a brownish background. And a uh, wholesome, happy woman, horrified woman, it's bizarre that these are happening at the same time. Um, and maybe it's like the two sides of all of our experiences or something, and there's something profound in it. I don't know. You know? I mean, we go to church on one day of the week, but we don't go to church on the other days of the week. You know, it's like we find a balance in life somewhere. What the hell? <laughs> Look at that, isn't that great? Probably, right, a photograph of Boris Karloff inspired this thing. <clears throat> Look at that. Here's his uh, sales tax deal. Saturday Evening Post, huh? Amazing. Here they are feeding women into a uh, giant uh, 
sausage maker of some sort. <laughs> and here's Ram saying, reading that very issue. <laughs> and here's Adventure. It's really one of the, there's so many great covers of Adventure, but that's just such a memorable one. You have to think it might be Ram Singh, I don't know. see in this uh, love story he he's, uses his full signature that's in the uh, Collier's and Saturday Evening Post it's uh, John Newton Howard again so he uh, after the marriage he's using age for uh, the embarrassing things which I'm pretty sure have to do with um, trying not to embarrass his wife because of her public uh, reputation and so uh, for her sake He's just toning it down by making it an age. But I don't believe he had any uh, concern uh, in terms of his personal ambition as a successful illustrator, whether the people Saturday Evening Post cared whether he did anything else or not. But maybe. This is another nice one. John Newton Howitt. Now, in 1942, his mother died. She was 84 years old. In 1945, he painted his last um, cover for Adventure. Uh, it was his last pulp cover. And um, his last slick cover was in 1946. <clears throat> And during the war, uh, you know, he painted many um, beautiful propaganda posters and stuff. And they're signed John Newton Howard again. This is his last uh, pulp cover. And this is his last Liberty cover, last Slick Magazine cover. And again, that's actually uh, 21 Lake Street right there in the photograph. I mean, in the painting, it's his little family home burning in a hellfire of flames. <laughs> what? Okay. His, um... <laughs> in 1948, his mother-in-law died. And I hate to say it, but thank God. And uh, he was then able, for the first time in his life, to leave his house on 21 Lake Street and moved to live with his wife. Um, they were both 63 years old at that time. And uh, the wife continued to work as the um, school nurse until 1952. Um, after the war years, he, uh, like the whole industry was, uh, of publishing was adapting to changing times and the um, Artists continued to paint um, covers for uh, outdoor life, which were, you know, uh, men's sporting adventure type magazines. And this same magazine used uh, J.W. Scott, Walter Baumhofer, Norma Saunders, Rudy Bolarski. And so it, that was a, a place where these guys were able to get jobs, but they were paid, uh, like again, like $150 as opposed to, um, 
$800 for a, a you know, slick magazine cover. So this is basically back on the uh, poor side of town again. And uh, he also uh, did uh, calendar paintings at the time. In 1953, his brother died. He was only 63 years old, and um, he had never married and never had any children. And um, his older brother buried him in White Plains Cemetery and, and commissioned this marker. And it's uh, for his younger brother, his mother, and his father. He then sold the family house and moved away from White Plains. and moved to this other house, which is where his wife's, you know, parents had built a home. Uh, so this is his wife's childhood home. <clears throat> these are the calendar paintings that he was doing at the uh, last years of his life. And these were uh, produced by the same people that were, had been doing the um, war posters and you can see that's a portrait of his wife on the porch. And uh, it seems, you know, these were intended for wholesome home decorations. And so, you know, there's pictures of happy families and stuff, and that was the agenda for the calendar painters. But it is uh, touching, you know, to see um, so many paintings of um, families with children, you know, in these things, um, and then he has a, him, his wife there. <clears throat> this is a, interesting, it's just, you know, a little kid pretending to be the strong man, and again, to, to read between the lines or something, um, an innocent child hoping to grow up uh, to be a healthy man. Um, and we can laugh at his uh, foible. Um, may have a different uh, profound feeling for this particular artist. I thought this was a really interesting one. It's a, la a late calendar that he did. It shows the typical uh, swimming hole of uh, Mark Twain or something. And it has in the very back the um, uh, sports fisherman, along with painting landscape paintings, uh, you know, how it liked to fish because he could uh, sit still and do something because he's never not really able to walk a lot. And so being on a boat or sitting on a pier and or fishing just from a, the, the riverbank was one of his, it was his only uh, favorite outdoor activity. So doing the uh, hunting things, he was bringing a lot of personal feeling about that. And so here you see a, a strange, uh, massive form from perhaps nature, God, of a, a black a tree growing and separating two halves of this painting. In the lower half, you have all the healthy little children having fun in an innocent swimming hole. And in the upper two halves, there's the, the fishermen having their own fun in their way. But you see isolated in the upper corner is a boy uh, who actually has a, a slight, he's unable to go swimming. He's uh, not joining the other boys. He has his clothing on. And uh, he's, his legs are actually bent slightly. It's very strange. Uh, it's, to me, actually a heartbreaking image. 
Um, so this is, a, I think, one of the many, many examples of how uh, an artist uh, will get some stupid uh, assignment paying him 125 bucks or something, and they say, go make a nice painting and make it as cheerful and stupid as possible. And you then go do it, and you produce something that you've taken uh, deep from your own feelings, I think, and bring to it, and, and it somehow transcends the stupidity of uh, all of our jobs and stuff. So uh, it's kind of a miracle, I think, basically. Here's a lovely picture of him, very happy. Uh, he was the president of the Westchester Art Society or whatever. And uh, you can see him really in his uh, milieu or something. And this is undoubtedly one of the happiest periods of his life, actually, because he was just doing his landscapes, living with his wife, and um, was a wealthy, celebrated uh, member of his community, and uh, a very a good leader. Um, among all the artists, the societies that he belonged to. He was, you know, the president and he, he tried to bring about all types of changes to improve them. The only um, sad part about it to me is just that he was a rabid anti-modernist and, um, you know, like many of the artists at the time, they felt uh, totally uh, overshadowed with admiration for um, uh, a new type of art, which was more uh, popular than their older uh, approach. So, one of the last things he said was, um, too much emphasis is put on art fashions of the moment. There's not enough recognition of good painting. We who are not modernists have found that we get no recognition today in art circles unless our work is clothed in a style that is considered fashionable. It does not matter how well or how forcibly we express it. We get no attention from critics or museums or even large exhibitions. Museum collections of American painting will never be important as long as they only follow the latest fad in art. Painting should have a more solid basis than fashion. As long as it is not possible for an artist to paint for mass production and do good work, many painters today are willing to adapt their prices to the buyer's pocketbook. We artists are ready to meet the private buyer halfway. We believe that no painting stacked against the wall is fulfilling its function. We must sell to continue painting, and unless we continue, art will die, because painting is not a part-time job. And then an inspiring little manifesto from the landscape painter. Over the many years of painting landscapes in his um, presence of the uh, ever-moving majesty of nature, the artist delighted in uh, the trance-like thrill of concentrating on painting a landscape painting. And this magic spell was only occasionally broken by a passing stranger's unsolicited comments, such as one exchange the artist fondly recalled when he was asked while painting, painting a picture, mister? Trying to, was all the artist replied. Ever sell one of them? Hope to. How much for that one? I know a lady that owns that pasture and she might buy it. Oh, about $200. And the stranger yelled, what, $200? Why the whole damn pasture ain't worth that much? <laughs> John Newton Howard died <laughs> uh, at the age of 72 on January 25th, 1958. And uh, the little town of Port Jervis printed this um, uh, 
memorial brochure when he had many, many exhibitions uh, about his work. So there you go. Any questions? Tony. Did you mention, and I, I would like a little replay, that for years in Manhattan studio, was on the same floor as Jerome Rosen's studio? No, I forgot that. You're right. I only mentioned that it was next to uh, John Fleming Gould. And, and also, uh, uh, Harry Steger was on the same floor. Harry Steger had a studio. Right. What was he doing? Knocking up girls? <laughs> Tell him uh, what happened to him. No, sorry, wait a minute. The one not Steger. Oh, not Steger. <laughs> uh, the uh, Harry Chuck, the comic book. Uh, oh, oh, okay, right. Any other questions? <laughs> it, it said there was only one piece of his art from the terror. You're always focusing on that one piece of art. What's the deal, man? Right now, you said that's all that existed. We gotta go? Yeah, tell him about what happened to his painting. Do we, do we have time or not? How long did it take? Two minutes? Yeah, there you go. I think I know, but I want to see if I <laughs> the, everlast the everlasting mystery of John Newton Howitt is how such a great painter, whose work really is uh, outstanding compared to everyone's work, um, how did he make such great, gruesome work? That's actually the mystery. What happened to the work is uh, truly the mystery. We don't know. Did they... Uh... Yes, yes. I know. That's the old question everyone wanted to know. Where's how it's worked? One, one thing, uh, I got to correct David on something. I didn't write that article. You did? I published it oh. in Purple Prose. I, I think it was someone associated uh, with Port Jervis, someone in uh, the local oh, yeah. government up there. I can't remember the name. Of the yeah. It was a gentleman. can't remember his name. Uh, I think... Uh, I think the town did a special exhibit of his paintings, and it was... Uh, it's the guy on that uh, brochure right there. Yeah, it was a brochure they published when they were doing his exhibit. Uh, I wrote to him to see if we could, I could reprint it in my magazine years back. Uh, wasn't me, though. I just published it. What I, I remember back then, supposedly they burned him. He and his wife. That was the rumor. What's his name? Robert Lesser. Uh, Robert Lesser. It was uh, when when we had uh, Polk Cut and Bowling Green. It was on exhibit out there. It was in Lesser's collection. I remember seeing it there. Oh wait, really? No, no, the how? Oh. Coming of the same time frame, and a lot of it has to do with the mythical uh, warehouse I, fire. I think there's not a warehouse fire gets popular. The warehouse fire was next door to popular, and it's all the water that they used. Everything here was destroyed. Mountains and hills are all rolled up. They're all uh, invented. I think one of the clues um, there are. I think there's a mystery there, and I think there are a number of clues you can dig into. Um, but the answer is we don't know where they are, and it is mysteriously uh, hard to believe that that much work could have disappeared um, of such outstanding work. But I think one of the interesting clues about it is that, as Steger said, uh, he was one of our best artists, um, and he was also a, um, not afraid to stand up for himself kind of guy. 
And um, Steger did overreach himself uh, many times in trying to maintain possession of uh, everything. And um, um, it's interesting how he made exceptions uh, for his every uh, absolute top artists. And uh, the two top artists really basically is Baumhofer and Howell. And so uh, Baumhofer could get away with anything he wanted and nobody else was in the same boat. And Howitt was right up there too. And um, in terms of the two personalities, Baumhofer never um, was as conflicted about his pulp work and his slick work. And I think Howitt uh, was, by uh, his situation, had, had to find himself within a conflict. And so how would Howitt have responded to that conflict? But I seriously doubt that he would have uh, wanted to let go of possession of the work uh, and uh, wanted to be uh, uh, in any way besmirch his wife's very noble career which he supported. So um, I, I think most likely there's a very good reason why it, it doesn't exist and I, I think it's a, a, an act not just happenstance I bet but that's just my hunch. Um, but ultimately again like I said we don't know but it's something to search for. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.